There I was in the ditch. The car had spun around and I was surrounded by broken glass. Her lawyers had built their entire office complex in imperial death march style. I need to get out of this hospital. This was not the plan. I need to get out of this hospital. I didn't want to come here. This was not in the plans. Hey there, and welcome to Grit, True Stories That Matter. Grit is a weekly podcast about stories, the contemporary personal narrative kind of story and the people that craft and tell them. Now, some weeks, a storyteller joins me here on the podcast, tells one of their stories, and then we break it down. Other weeks, we will share stories with you from one of our weekly events, the Mental Health Happiest Hour, or the 99 Second Slam, or today from Deja True, which is a series of truologues. Now, what is a truologue? Good question. We stumbled across this form and started exploring it primarily in The Flash, another one of our Sunday events that is a little bit of story and a little bit of improv. And these stories, these truologues, open the stage for two tellers, to meet each other's truths through the telling of their own experience. The tellers go back and forth, weaving their personal stories around one prompt or theme. Different lives. And so we're playing with this form, and today we have two truologues from our most recent Deja True, which was last week. Uh, The first truologue is from Neshama Franklin, who lives in California, and Dan Boyd, who is in Chicago. And the second one is Tori Shine, based out of Pittsburgh, and me, Sean, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. This is also the first episode of Season 3, which will be dedicated to Grand Slam champions. You might not like that as an entire season, but there is a lot we can learn from them. And here's some great stories. So that is what we're going to do for the rest of the year. As always, check the show notes for upcoming events and workshops, both in-person and virtual. And a friendly reminder, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, stop this right now. Pause it. Scroll down. Leave us a review or a rating. It really helps people find this podcast. Thanks very much for that. Okay, again, two stories today. Two truologues today. The first one is by Dan Boyd and Nishama Franklin. The second one by me, Sean Wellington, and Tori Shine. Let's dive in. There I was, in the ditch. The car had spun around and I was surrounded by broken glass. I somehow had the presence of mind to reach over and turn off the ignition and the new age music that had been playing. There was an uncanny silence in which time seemed to stop. And and then the sirens came and there were three ambulances. One for me, I I didn't think I was hurt. One for the, I learned it was a motorcycle and we had collided. I had looked both ways. I was just a couple of minutes from my house. How could this have happened? And what did it mean? I basically thought that this could be the end of my life as I knew it. And as I 
peeled my fingers off that useless steering wheel right now. I sat there absolutely terrified. Her lawyers had built their entire office complex in imperial death march style. So I'm in this gigantic room with this oversized table that just stretches for miles and tapers at the end. So they have me at the taper and they sit at the other end with just this vast amounts of desk space. And these secretaries come in with pencil skirts and ask if we want coffee but look at us with these forlorn eyes that say, I'm so sorry, my boss is gonna fuck you. I've been sued by my best friend and she's claimed that she has created a secret corporation that owns all of the artwork that I've created between 2011 and 2014 because I've created with all of my friends, she also claims to own everything that they've created with me. And the thing about America is you can sue anybody for anything to make them pay for a lawyer. Well, the insurance company lawyer was uh, not very encouraging. I mean, he basically said he had the right of way, you're at fault, you're screwed. My heart, of course, sank even further. But my sister said, try mediation. And that felt a lot better to, you know, because I really don't trust the justice system. So my mediator, he was a little guy, um, soft-spoken, appropriate. He had tasseled loafers, which I didn't like too much. But what he basically told me is he said, look, Nishama, it's our job to worry. And if you need to worry, we'll tell you. What was I worried about? Uh, not exactly my victim, as it were. I mean, I knew he had a hurt arm. I was worried about myself, my future, my nest egg, my retirement, my house, my cushion between what I thought was going to see me through and the kind of echoey, scary reality that a lot of people without this lovely cushion feel all the time. And so you could call it a form of American Zen. I had to live in the now, but it was more like two and a half years of held breath. I go back in time to that lawsuit, but I try to ebb towards forgiveness and forgiveness isn't forgetfulness. It's not without consequences but it's the letting go of the holding on to. So I try to remember these times where it all began. Was it when I first introduced her on that coffee date to Adam Baker, our good friend? Is it the first time we hold hands together? I never go back to our first kiss. But I get dragged back to that lawsuit that consumed two and a half years of my life. I go back to the federal courtroom where the judge looked at me in his office and he said, let's get this solved tonight. There we finally were. And the place where it 
happened in San Francisco was peculiar looking. There were these made, kind of made of cinder blocks, but in between the cinder blocks were these glass colored blocks. It was an attempt to make it look perhaps a little more magisterial or maybe a little more cheerful. But when we got inside, it was a windowless room with that endless long table. And there was my lawyer and there was his lawyer and there was her lawyer his girlfriend who had ridden behind him. And there was a lawyer from Caltrans. I wasn't sure what he was doing there. This was the first time I laid eyes on my uh, victims. They looked sturdy and fine to me, but I knew there had been injury. And then the mediation started back and forth and back and forth. And I knew that I was not supposed to say very much because that's what one does. And after each round, it was kind of like a very subtle boxing match. The lawyers would go into a corner and then chat with each other very collegially about sailing, about golf. Then they'd get together round two, round three. And at the end of round three, they came up with what actually felt good. I would pay this guy's medical expenses. I could afford this guy's medical expenses. And I let out my breath for the first time fully in two and a half years. You should know, by the way, what Caltrans was doing there. It turns out I wasn't the deep pockets after all the state of California was because they had never put back the sign that they had taken off that showed the intersection many, many years ago. So they ended up doing quite well. But at that moment, it was just an opportunity. They said, would you like to talk? with each other and we both nodded solemnly and we stood up and we faced each other and we looked into each other's eyes and out of our mouths came the same phrase I'm so sorry it was such bad luck and we actually hugged I could feel my tremble and possibly his as well and so it was at last a possible form of justice. We left that room settled. And as we headed to the giant glass doors and that federal building and the galaxy far, far away of the Chicago twinkling lights and the cars zooming by, I knew what I had to do. And I called to her and I said, Jane, and her red hair turned towards my blue and my blue eyes locked with her green. She took a step away from her lawyers, pulled away from them. And I said, thank you. Thank you for settling today. But thank you for all the good things that you brought into my life. It wasn't nothing. She couldn't, wouldn't, didn't hold my gaze. And I knew that that would be the last time that I ever had any contact with her. And I'd love to tell you that in that moment, I had it in me to forgive her. But I only knew that I needed to get there. And so I wanted my last word to her to be that. Because I know the power of forgiveness. 
But the truth is, I'm not there yet. to get out of this hospital. This was not the plan. When I came here to Dublin, Ireland for St. Patrick's Day, my plan consisted of pubs, parades, dancing in the streets. Instead, I get attacked by some random guy on a side street. He is amped up. He's wearing brass knuckles with spikes in them. And when he punches me, the spike splits open my head above my left eye. Now everyone else is at an after party and I am bleeding alone in this hospital waiting for stitches. And I swear the emergency room in Dublin, Ireland on St. Patrick's Day is a total shit show. There are drunk people bleeding everywhere. I'm supposed to fly to Amsterdam tomorrow. I have tickets for this music festival the jam and the dam, and I'm going to visit my boyfriend, Boris. He's Dutch. My flight leaves in five hours. Finally, I walk out of the hospital. My face is swelling up in bruises. My head is wrapped in gauze. I hail a cab to the airport. I need to get out of this hospital. It's the UNC Psych Center. I, I didn't want to come here. This was not in the plans. This is a place you come when you want to kill somebody or kill yourself. That's not me. I just didn't want to keep living. That's not the same. When there was nowhere else to go, I checked myself in and I stay a week, half my time in the ER, the rest in the psych unit. I need help, but I'm not getting it here. This place is an absolute shit show, so I leave. The only thing that's changed, I've lost a week. Oh, and I'm going to get a bill, a big bill. And when I do, when I get this bill, I will no doubt add more holes to the living room or bedroom or bathroom walls because this is the place where it goes. That's the place where it goes. And I'm still alone. That hasn't changed either. Look, if something doesn't change, the next time it won't be a psych unit or the psych ER. It's going to be a jail or a cemetery. I know this and I know something needs to change and I need to get out of this house. I've been back a week, but every time I open the door to leave, I stop because I feel like everybody is always staring at me. Like I've got this big tattoo across my entire face and it says dangerous. I get to Amsterdam and everyone is staring at me. My face is covered in bruises. My head is wrapped in bandages. I look like a train wreck. It's obvious I've been beaten up. And people are judging me. They're giving me dirty looks. It's like I've got this giant sign that says victim on my face. There's a cop at the airport. He scowls at me and he says, well, that must have been some door. And I feel ashamed and I feel embarrassed. But when Boris sees me for the first time, he doesn't flinch. And he's not embarrassed to be seen with me. We go out in public, we, we go out to dinner. And there's a big part of me that just wants to be alone, to hide somewhere inside. 
But these bruises aren't going to go away any faster no matter where I am. And jamming the dam, it's happening now. And so I go. I go to the festival like this. And I have to lean on a railing. I'm dizzy from the concussion. But I lean onto the railing. And I'm moving with the music. I'm dancing. And for a moment, I feel good. Dance. I see a flyer for a dance class, a salsa class. It's near me. It's on a Monday night. I've done salsa before when I was up in New York. So I go. This is Cuban salsa. It's done in a group, in a circle. I'm in this big beginner circle. And, and for that Monday night, I dance for two hours. Is it fun? No. Because I feel like everybody is looking at me, judging me. The fuck are you looking at? I am not dangerous. It's the tattoo. And I know everybody can see it plastered across my face, dangerous. And after that Monday night, I don't want to go back. And that week when I'm home, I hide. And I'm looking at those walls with those holes. And I know no matter where I go or what I do or who I do it with, I'm going to feel this way. So I go back that next Monday night. I even tell some people before class starts about my stay in the hospital. They don't seem to mind. In fact, one guy says, okay, you ready to dance? And so after that second class, I know I'm coming back. And I do all winter and into spring, Monday nights, I dance. And then I go home. And for the rest of the week, I'm still alone. But I've got those Monday nights and I'm getting good. Good enough to have these moments. They don't happen often and they don't last long, but sometimes when I'm moving in this space with these people to that music, this is now where it goes. This is where it goes. There are no new holes in that wall. And I feel better. I feel a little better. These moments when I just forget about that tattoo and I dance. At summer, one of the women tells me that they are planning a trip to Havana. It's the birthplace of Cuban salsa. Do I want to go? She asks me. And I'm thinking, with this tattoo across my face? Really? Me? Boris asks me if I want to come with him to Utrecht, his hometown in the Netherlands. And I'm like, really? Me? Like this? And he means it. He wants to show me where he grew up. And when we get to Utrecht, he brings me to this bar called Aku. It's packed. Aku, it's a punk rock bar. It used to be a squat. It's a non-traditional kind of place. And the manager recognizes Boris right away. He used to work there. The manager comes over to us and he tells us like, hey, we're really understaffed tonight. And then he asks the both of us if we would be willing to help out, work a shift at the bar. Really? Me? Like this? He is totally cool with me working this bar, bandages, bruises, and all. Up until now, since I left the hospital, I've, just, I've always felt like an outsider. But now I'm, I'm volunteering in this punk rock bar in Utrecht. I'm serving drinks in Dutch. I'm speaking French to a tourist from West Africa. And I just, I get lost in the moment and I forget that I'm hurt and I'm laughing and I'm smiling and I'm still covered in bruises. Everyone can see it. But the people here, they're not judging me. 
They're not treating me like a victim. They're treating me like a person. And, and I feel like a person and it feels so good. When my shift is over, the music is blasting and Boris and I, we embrace and we dance. Really, Sean, come with us to Cuba. I say yes. And later that summer, seven of us are landing in Havana's airport. The dance company we have hired tells us to meet them at the Malecon. It's this big, long stone boardwalk. Look, they wanna show us where they're from. And when we arrive, we hug, we kiss. One of the dance teachers gives me a bottle of rum. Try it, he says. We have drinks. Nine months ago, I was in the hospital and I was home alone. And now I'm in Havana with friends. And I still have those moments of not wanting to be here. And I know that tattoo, that may never be gone, but it's fading. And then one of our teachers turns the music on and we embrace all of us and we form a big circle, all of us, including me. And the sun is shining and the waves are splashing and the music is blasting and it feels so good. And we dance. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. And special thanks to Dan Boyd, Nishama Franklin, and Tori Shine for allowing me to use your Truelog for the Grit Podcast. Check the show notes for upcoming workshops and events, including Deja True 3. That's what we're calling it for now. Another six, maybe seven Truelogs like the two you heard here on this episode. New theme and some new tellers, but it's going to be the same solid, interesting, new, different, unique, hopefully compelling kinds of stories. Join us. That is all for our first episode of season three. Boom.